Well, I want you to just take a journey back with me to your childhood. For some of you, that's a very long journey. For others of you, it's, oh, I'm still here, and that's fine too. But I want you to go back, and particularly if you had siblings, there may be a few only children, so you'll have to think about people around. But for those of you who had siblings, I want you to think about what you fought about growing up. Just think about what you fought about. If you're online, you can actually write that even in the chat or talk to the people in your house. What did you fight about growing up? And I'm sure, like me, there were very substantive issues. I had one sister, and we fought, even in the back seat, we fought over who had gone over the midpoint line. Did you guys have this? When there's two, you tend to have half of the back seat, and your parents in their wisdom go, now you two don't stop touching each other. Don't cross that line. And then my sister would cross it just to see me react, and we would fight. We either fought about that or the bathroom, two very important things. But we have all sorts of things we fight about, don't we? I mean, that's childhood. I want you to think about what it is you're fighting with other people about now. What are you in conflict over? What's a conflict in your, in your immediate family? What are you in conflict over with the people around you? What are you in conflict even with people in the church? That it's amazing. Would anyone else agree that we seem to be in more conflict than ever, at least in my lifetime? And if people would just think like me, it would all get better. But no one does. Well, I tell you this, this idea of conflict and where we're giving it, we, love the, we really love the idea of love and we love what we read about it in Scripture. In fact, in our series, we're starting through a passage. It's Paul writes to this church in Corinth. And when you hear the words, if you weren't with us last week, you're going to know them even if you haven't been around church because if you've been to enough weddings, this often is read at weddings because we think of it as this lovely statement towards a couple of how marriage is supposed to be. Aww, isn't it beautiful? And so it begins, this is what we looked at last week, love is patient and love is kind. I mean, really nice sentiments and ideas. Before we go on and before we look at the next section, though, I want to either remind you or tell you for the first time, if you weren't here, when Paul writes this letter, Corinth is a place that he had traveled through and really everywhere he went, he brought the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He was telling people about who Jesus was and what he'd done. And oftentimes when he did that, power would be demonstrated too. So he'd tell them, he'd proclaim it, and then he'd demonstrate it. And the church grew up all through Asia Minor as a result of this. It just spread like wildfire. And so he was in this church in Corinth for a year and a half, spending time with them, kind of growing them up. When we call it the church, literally what it is is people who believe in Jesus, who responded to the resurrection, coming together in a community to bring the joy and the presence and the hope of who he is to everyone around them. So Paul leaves for a while. He's continuing on other journeys, and word comes back to him, it's not going so well in Corinth. They're fighting, they're arguing, there's all sorts of struggles. We went through those in detail last week. We won't. But that's the backdrop for what it is we're reading right now. It's not a wonderful poetic sentiment. It is literally the course correction Paul's giving to a church fractured, arguing, fighting, and in factions. And so last week, we began it with love is patient, love is kind. We looked at the fact that patience specifically is not just the idea of waiting for a while. It's patiently enduring hurt. It's actually embarking and taking on things that are difficult. Now, I want to sidestep just for a minute. And any of you who are here that are parents of young children that are utilizing our kids' ministry, whether here or online, whether today or this week, this whole month, I'll just remind you, our kids are learning all about waiting. And it's great for you as parents to know what that is. Every week, they're going to get a different story of how people had to wait for the coming of Jesus and what it means and what builds in them through it. Guess what? It connects to what we're learning too. 
And I just want to remind you as parents, what a great way to think about what you're learning and what your kids are and go beyond the day, which we all want to do in every facet. When we looked at love as kind, we said this, that it's not simply kindness like being nice, that it's generous, a generous dispensing simply of grace. It's giving mercy to people. And that's what we saw last week. These are the do's that Paul gives about love. Here's how you are to love. This is how you're to do it. Now today what we're going to look at are the don'ts, the things that have to come back and pull back from life. And I'm going to read them to you and then we're going to go through them one at a time. But I want to tell you right now, there is no human way you can do this on your own. So here's the beauty of what I'm asking today before we even look at them. I want you to ask God to help you. Like we can't change who we are. This is not going to come through just sheer grit and trying more. It comes through him changing us and walking into it. And I want to give you one more picture before I read them because it's something that's really, I found myself praying this for all of us a lot in the last few months. It comes from a story that Jesus tells. He calls it the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soil. And he talks about seed being planted. And basically the seed is kind of the truth of who he is and what he does. And he gives four types. The first type is a soil that's so hardened on the path that the, the seed can't even go in. It can't be understood. And it says the devil takes it away. And the second soil is one that it gets it, but then it can't grow because it's too shallow because they're rocks. It's too shallow of a soil to actually take what's given and have it grow. And the third one, it, it can grow in it, but there are weeds around it. And he says the weeds are the worries of the world and wealth. They tend to choke out what he wants to do. And then the last one, he says, is good soil where it can actually grow. He says it produces fruit 30, 60, even 100 times. Now, I got to tell you, as one who is your pastor and loves you, having a quarter of the people be in good shape is not what you want. And it's not what I want in my own life. Because make no mistake, this is not just four types of people. This means in any circumstance, you and I can be any of these things. So all I'm asking today is would you ask God to make sure the soil of your receptive heart is being tilled, is being ready for what he wants to say. I don't think it's easy, but I think it's good. And the last thing I want to do is give you another thought that you have to go home and try to execute on your own. All right, so here are the don'ts. You need God's help, right? You're with me on that? Can't do it alone. Even you high-function people, those of you who are great at disciplines, this ain't going to work. It just doesn't. This is what he says. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Whew. Now, I'm sure my wife's thinking, that is you, honey. No, I don't think it is. Does it feel overwhelming to you? I hope it does. I want you to be honest of what's in your own attitudes and heart. And we're going to take it one at a time. I don't know that all seven are going to apply to you. I don't think we could take them all on. But maybe if you just ask the Lord, would you just give me one that I could address today? Would you give me one place to start, Holy Spirit? So the first one is it does not envy. Now, envy, it simply means uh, that you're jealous for, you're eager. But you might say it's this way. It really relates to rivalry. So what you're jealous is for is to win. In fact, if you wanted to give one word to envy, it's winning. All I do is win, win, win. That's what it's all about. What happens with envy is you measure yourself against others and you always want to come out on top. Now tell me, is that not how we live life? 
don't know if you're like me. I am more than happy to see your success as long as it's just not quite as good as mine. He's saying, man, it does not envy. It does not look at the person across the table and say, I need to win. And yet, do we not live in places, even to those closest to us? <laughs> Whenever I read this one, all I can think about is how I actually, I love debate and argument. Can you imagine having to live with me? What that's like? I mean, I'm always ready to win. I'm always trying to win. I don't even care if it's true. I just want to try and make a good argument. Isn't that the wrong posture? It does not envy. Now, I want to remind you, this whole thing that Paul writes is all to this church in Corinth. So let me take you back into the letter. At this time, what they're doing, very simply, is they've made different factions. They've kind of found their own way, and they're arguing about it. Who's better? Who has the right person they're following? Which ones are the best Christ followers, if you will, and which one's following the right one? And this is what he says to them. Hey, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? I love this. Are you not acting like mere humans? <laughs> Which David would go, that's great, I am human. But he does not mean it this way. And what he's saying to them is, you are so caught up in winning that you are jealous and you argue. Now, could you just consider today, and, and let me even ask this, do you think we are in a time where we're quarreling more than ever? I mean, I do. I go anywhere and I hear it. I, I hear it between spouses. I hear it between generations of families. I hear it between one family and another. I hear it in the church. I hear it in the community. And boy, do I see it online. Like we are so busy quarreling and arguing, wanting to win. And Paul is saying to us, love does not need to win. Love does not envy. It does not look at others and say, you're better than me or I'm better than you. And the only thing he gives in this is Jesus is the foundation. It's not about one leader. It's not about another. It's not which group you're in. It's not what you're doing. It is him. You don't need to win. By the way, winning and losing is part of the human sin condition. When you look at how Jesus interacts, it's like a different way. It's like he's going, there's another way. Love does not envy. Here's the second one. Love does not boast. Love does not boast. Boasting, literally in the Greek language, means to be a braggart or a windbag. You're full of hot air. You're basically, very simply, elevating yourself. If envy is winning, boasting is elevating. It's how do I promote myself? How do I bring myself up above someone else? This is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. Paul uses it once this particular word for boasting. He talks about it other ways. And then what happens is in this same beginning, if we go back to the earlier part of Corinth, they're again fighting and arguing and he'll hearken back. This is his antidote to the factions that are going on. One follows one leader, one follows another. One's decided this is good and another's not. And this is what he says about it in their way of elevating themselves. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. <laughs> it doesn't really uh, promote our intellect, does it, when you read that? We have this idea that, that basically Paul's saying, you think you are so smart. You think you figured it all out. You think you are wise and you have the right perspective on this. Man, lower yourselves. You do that, realize that humility is the opposite of pride. Pride. 
saying, let yourself be a fool. Later on, this is, he gets even worse because later on he basically says to them, the thoughts of the wise are futile. That's what he says God says about it. That is not speaking high of our intellect, is it? Now, we have this other idea where people think we have to be disingenuous to intellect to be Christians. That's not what this means. What it's saying is there's a limitation to our human wisdom and intellect. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Because I'm a a guitarist wannabe and I've spent much of my life both practicing and kind of observing other guitarists and learning from them, every once in a while you get to cross paths with someone who's a master at it. And you know what I find with anybody who's really that level of accomplishment? They always say, there's so much I don't know. Like the more they know, the more they realize I don't know, instead of the more they elevate themselves. I don't know if this, it's, it's something that I always find humorous. Do you know the word sophomore? We, freshman and sophomore. Sophomore means wise fool. It literally means you think you know a lot, but you don't realize how foolish you are. <laughs> Do you know, as people, I think oftentimes we're sophomoric. We think, I got this right and you got it wrong. I'm going to puff myself up. And we have no idea. And we're not walking humbly going, God, I couldn't see this the way you do. Paul's saying, love does not boast. (laughs) It does not need to elevate themselves. The next one is really similar. It's not proud. And this actually does... (laughs) very simply mean to puff up. It means to make yourself larger, not through eating, make yourself larger for how you think. I wish it meant that because I'd go for that one. Simply pride is kind of the idea that we puff up and see ourselves in another way. It's funny that Paul has used several words for this. You can see how much he's wanting to get this through to us. But we have this pride. Here's what he says, talking again about their factions. He says, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. These are two different leaders for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. In other words, don't make us more than we are. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over and against another. How often do we think I figured it out right and the other people don't get it right? And there's an arrogance to that. There is a puffed up to that. There's a comparison we bring. And make no mistake, you know this can happen. This, I'm speaking of it more broadly, but you know this happens in your homes, right? Do you know how many times I've looked at the people around me and they say things, but like, you just do not get this right. Let me as your father, your husband, your brother, your son, remind you of how right I am. Can't we do this anywhere? We are so convinced that we're right that we're proud. Paul makes it clear, not just in their interactions, he's talking about even with him and with the life of the church, he says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. I I love this part as he continues on because he's basically saying, hey, listen, I'm coming back to check on you. (laughs) I wonder how often what we do, we feel like nobody's checking on. And Paul's going, listen, I'm here. I'm gonna remind you that you need a voice of truth into your life in the midst of this mess you're dealing with. You know, later in the letter, uh, there's a section where they are arguing about food sacrifice to idols. And some of them understand, hey, when the food's sacrificed, it doesn't have any power. We can still eat it because it doesn't have a power intrinsically in it. We just have to ignore it. 
So they have freedom. They understand it and they have freedom. But there are others that that is hard for them and they're concerned about the association. And Paul says to them this, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And what he's saying is you're so busy being right, you forgot to be loving for others that need the care and the compassion whether you think it's an issue or not. Well, imagine if we went through life with that. Hey, I don't want to know if I'm right. I want to know if it's loving. I don't need to be right and remind you you're wrong. I just want to be loving and helpful to you. That's a different posture than puffed up. We continue. <laughs> I feel like it's a car salesman. And there's more, but they're all more difficult things. Love does not dishonor others. <laughs> It, dishonor and honor literally means to treat them with dignity. So dishonor is very simply to shame them or degrade them or be harsh or hostile. In very simple form, it's putting down. If pride built, puffs yourself up, dishonor tears others down. And what it very simply does is forget the dignity of each person. Do you know whoever you're in conflict with is made in the image of God? Did you know whoever you're in conflict with is deeply loved by God? They're not identified by what you agree or disagree about. This was a huge problem in Corinth, and I think it's becoming a huge problem in the church overall and in our homes and our families. Paul tells it like this when it's about them coming together. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. They're supposed to come together and have this really sacred meal. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. What he simply means here is one doesn't get any and another overindulges. And what happened in ancient Rome, in this culture, was there was a caste system. There were those who were highest elevated all the way down to those who were slaves. And there's all these in between. And wherever you fell in the cast, that was the order with which you did anything. In other words, if you're higher on the cast than me, I don't talk unless you speak. If you're higher, you get to eat before I do. If you're higher, all these things happen. And Paul's saying you are living like the rest of culture. You have forgotten what the Lord's Supper is. And you dishonor each other. You treat it as if you are better than because of a circumstance, something you're born with, something you've earned, and you've somehow made the scales differently. You know, I have to say, and, and I am guilty of this too, but as I watch the things we've disagreed over, large and small, we have become so dishonoring of each other. We say it so harshly, and horribly, we dehumanize the people we disagree with, we become enemies, and we see with disdain and without love. And make no mistake, that happens everywhere. It's funny, I think to myself, you know, I'm not dishonoring, and then here's how I do it. When I see someone who dishonors someone else, I'm torqued at them and I dishonor them. That's ironic, by the way. Oh, look, they're dishonoring someone else, so I'm gonna dishonor them for dishonoring them. Like, I somehow feel I can judge them because they're judging someone else, and I've just done the very same thing. And we have forgotten how to treat one another as the very apple of God's eye. You are talking to a person who is made, loved, and cherished by God. I wonder this week if we just went back and said, how have I communicated to the people around me in the last month? 
what we might see. I wonder if we might even just keep this alongside of us, if things we both see, write, say, talk about might change if we had to see it through the lens of am I honoring someone. Make no mistake, it doesn't mean you can't disagree. We should disagree. We have things to disagree about. But can you disagree with dignity and still love and relationship? This isn't saying you just forget everything. It's saying you do it differently. What if you just looked around everybody you meet and said, how can I honor them? Not put them down, but build them up. I think if this alone we changed, lots would change around us. I find it heartbreaking what I see and even subject and do myself. Next one is it's not self-seeking. Self-seeking is really the idea of advancing yourself. It's just kind of promoting and advancing what you die. It's self-seeking is desiring and longing for me. (laughs) It's what I can do for me, what I can do for my life, what I can do to help myself, what I do to look out for myself. And we live in a world, don't we, that is trained to do this? I mean, you got to look out for yourself. It's moving myself ahead. It's what I do for me. I've earned it. I work towards it. And you know what? We treat people like they're contractual. As long as they move me ahead, and I'll even move them ahead as long as it benefits me. But ultimately, there's an ulterior motive for me. I don't remember if I shared this in this hour. You know, you say these things a lot of times, but I've learned the way to appear to be helping others, but always promoting myself. Still promoting, even under the eyes that I can help. That's not the same as really looking to advance and help them. This is how Paul writes about it. He does it multiple times again to the letter. Hey, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Then he talks about his own life. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul has a vision in his mind. You know what? I will serve others because that's the way they discover the love of Christ. In case you don't know, that's the way Jesus lived. His, his disciples come around him and they're like, hey, can we be in charge like you? Can we be elevated and promoted? Can we advance our cause? And he says, listen, you don't lead like the rest of the world leads. They load it over people. They want to be in charge. You instead become servants of all. And he says, I'm so deeply in this. I'll serve and give my life for them. It is upside down. I'm not trying to promote or seek my own needs. I'm trying to help the good of others. And by the way, this is not making them God. I do whatever they want. This is I do what's best to help them. There's a difference. You're not then saying you're, you're kind of emboldened. It's saying how can I serve for the best in their lives? He continues. It is not easily angered. <laughs> you know, of all seven of them, my own take on this is that we have become a really angry culture, haven't we? And you may not think you are. I know how I, know how I f- figure out that I'm actually more angry than I usually am is when I drive. Have you realized how many people do not know how to drive? And how often I want to tell them things? Do you know what it's like to be a pastor and have that, by the way? You have anonymity. You go out, you say whatever you want. I start to talk to oh, crud. Like there's a stupid check where I can't even do the horrible things I want to do to people or say, which I shouldn't, but I'm not just being honest. I've just realized that we're really angry with each other, that the fuse doesn't take long to burn. And, and I don't know if you're like this. This is what happens to me. I can hold it in for a while and no one will see it. But what happens is I build up to a threshold and then it blows. And then the people are me like, where did that come from? And you're like, well, you should have been looking in the tank that's rising, but you didn't see or no. Can't you figure this out? 
Make sense to you? I mean, Paul's saying that doesn't happen easily. It takes a lot to anger someone who follows Jesus and is loving. Loving is not easily angered. I want to take you through, these are the three major questions, or the three major places where anger arises in Corinth, and I think it relates to us today. It was fascinating when I started to look at it. So the first one is who's in the best group. They're, they're fighting and angered over thinking they're better than others, and they pick the right alignment. Now, has that not been true in our culture right now? We pick all sorts of different things, but it is basically either you're this one or you're that one, and if you're not this one, then something's wrong with you, and I'm even mad. How could you even be, how could you think that way? And the anger wells up, doesn't it? We somehow believe by the places we align who's in the best group and the right group. The next one is they basically ask who's most enlightened over freedom, and when you aren't enlightened and you mess with my freedom, it makes me mad. Twice Paul deals with this in the letter. He deals with it over what they perceive as sexual freedom, and they're kind of doing whatever they want recreationally, and he's going, you're actually proud of this, and you have no realization that Jesus lived and died and rose again in the flesh, that your body is a facet of what Jesus invites and calls us in how we live. You got freedom the wrong way, and you're mad when anybody challenges it. Tell me that's not true of us today. Oh, my goodness. And then the second one is this whole thing of food sacrifice to idols. They're mad that anyone would put any limits on them. I think of all the things that we've been dealing with this last year, and I've heard so many people get angry. Why is there any limit on me? Why is this going on? I'm like, I don't even care. I don't even know it's the right thing. Why don't we instead ask, who's this affecting, and how would it help them if I just serve? Even if I give up some freedoms to help them right now. Think of how angry we get when we have anything that's taken from us. And yet that's not the way of love. Let me take you to the final one. It's in the church. He says, whoever gets power and favor when they get together. Everything that's around this chapter on love is about what's happening when they gather. And people are having these major manifestations of the spirit, but they're kind of doing their own thing on it. And they don't really care how it affects anyone else. They just love that God's showing favor on them. And then it makes them mad when people are struggling with it. I I just wonder how these connect to today. And it, it kind of led me to this question for us. How easily do we get angry when we think we're right and what is it over? I wonder if you're honest asking, what is it today that you get angry about and it seems to be unconquerable? Because we all have them. What might God be saying to you to engage in this, to look differently. Let me take it to the final one. It keeps no record of wrongs. Literally, it means that it does not keep score on any evil done to it. It doesn't keep a count. That's simply all it means. There's no counting to this. Now, you may even say, but you don't realize what's happened to me. You don't realize what's been done. And I'm not subject, suggesting you subject yourself to trauma or anything like that. But I am saying is so much of what we do is just keeping track of how we've been wronged. It's funny, I always think of myself as someone who lets go of things, and I generally do until someone brings things back to me, and then I'm more than happy to bring my list out. Oh, well, if you're not gonna let go, let me bring mine back. I don't keep a record of wrongs unless you do. That's not the invitation, is it? Paul says this in the second letter to Corinth. It was God that reconciled himself to the 
the world in Christ. He didn't count people's sins against them, and he's committed us to the same message of reconciliation, which is literally, we don't count them against others. We reconcile and find a way to be in relationship again. I hope you're feeling overwhelmed by this, because I do. But I hope it's a good overwhelmed. I love when I'm in a place where I go, God, I can't do this, and I need you. That's called dependence, by the way. This isn't a self-actualized, I'm going to figure it out. This is a God, I don't know how not to be proud. I don't know how to not envy. I don't know how to let go of things that have been wronged. I don't know how not to have anger well up. I need you. I think this list actually kind of exposes those places that we struggle. And I, I, I actually ache more for people that are really disciplined because people that are disciplined think I'll just set up a plan and make this work. Those who aren't go, listen, I can't make this work. <laughs> like you realize what this is, is we need to ask God to meet us when those things happen. You will envy. You will probably envy this afternoon. And you'll have to say, Holy Spirit, oh, would you show me the love of Christ? Would you pour that out that I wouldn't look to this or be jealous of? When the anger is rolling up, Holy Spirit, would you help me not to carry this, not to let it infect and infest my life? This is a way we learn to walk with God in life in new ways. You see, very simply, it's not about winning elevating, puffing up, putting down, advancing, being angry, or being owed. It's not about winning, elevating, puffing up, putting down, advancing, being angry, or being owed. It's not about winning, elevating, puffing up, putting down, advancing, being angry, or being owed. And make no mistake, every one of those things serves you in a very unhealthy, ungodly way. It is very simply about giving what you've received. I have come and believe this more and more as I get older in my faith that when we lack love, we lack really knowing how much God loves us. That we don't really get what it means that Jesus forgives, that Jesus doesn't keep a record wrong, that Jesus isn't easily angered with us, that Jesus never envies. That Je I mean, it's amazing to consider. We say in our mission we're to be radically loving and growing together in Christ. We cannot live this way without his help. So I just wonder what it would look like as you and I head out into the week to go, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you on Monday. I need you on Monday afternoon. I'm going to need you in 10 minutes when I leave here, when I'm driving and seeing how people drive. I'm going to need you when I go to lunch. I'm going to need you this evening. I'm going to need you tomorrow morning to actually become the kind of loving person you invite me to be to the people around me. And by the way, if the church becomes like that, do you think it's going to change the world? Oh, I do. We do not need another winning plan, some way that's going to demand its way through. We need people that love Jesus and love others that are going to change the world by how they live and love. Jesus did not say they're going to know you because of what you do to, to basically demand the world. He said they're going to know you by your love. They're going to know you because you live in a self-sacrificing, self-denying, unexplainable way that you'd never be able to do on your own. 
I simply want to pray that God would lead us into that soil that wants it, not soil that says, "Ah, I don't need it, not soil that says, nice idea, I'm going to move on, not soil that says, I got too much going on, but soil that says, I need this and I need you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, I believe that you are leading each person, so I'm just asking you to whisper, to prompt, to give a thought of what area you might be inviting people to be transformed. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the love of Jesus to each person where they have a deficit in that area. I pray they would rest in identity, not in trying to build it by reputation or winning around them. God, I'm just asking for you to help us live and love differently. I ask this in your holy name, amen.